We were established in London in 2008 and are now open in Paris, Amsterdam, Melbourne, Antwerp, Belgrade and Istanbul. Uh, we offer classes, workshops, retreats, intensive, secular sermons and therapies in person. We also publish books, film our events and make and sell a range of objects and tools that assist you in the quest for a more fulfilled life. We also run a consulting and training service for businesses. The School of Life is a place to step back and think intelligently about central emotional concerns. You will never be cornered by dogma, but we will direct you towards a variety of ideas from the humanities, from philosophy to literature, psychology to the visual arts. Ideas that will exercise, stimulate, and expand your mind. You will meet other curious, sociable, and open-minded people in an atmosphere of exploration and enjoyment, or as the case may be today, you'll meet your fellow classmates once again. Now, as for me, I'm a poet. I came to poetry as a student in Philadelphia, where I learned more about language and my place in the world than I expected to. At present, I edit for two journals, Cordite and Peril, a regular weekly column for Cultural Weekly, and letterpress print small pamphlets for Work and Tumble. My latest book is called Loam Words and is due for release by the end of the year. It's an artist book, which means it's in a limited edition and is handmade, but a PDF of it will be freely available online. Okay, so what is the wisdom of poetry? I want to get us thinking about this question today with some food for thought. Now, Megan has some fortune cookies, which she's going to hand around. Um, maybe we'll just pass them out? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can eat it. Once you once you get a fortune cookie, maybe some at the back so these people get. Now, when you get your fortune cookie, I want you to crack it open and read what's inside. Now that you've got your fortune cookie, read it, think about it, and have a think, is this wisdom and is it poetry? Now those are the questions we'll come back to later on today, so just hold that thought. Hold on to your piece of paper, eat your cookie if you want to. Um, but in asking what is the wisdom of poetry, we might want to consider for a moment what is wisdom and what is poetry. 
There are, of course, many ideas about what wisdom is. In a quote attributed to Socrates, we find that wisdom is knowing you know nothing. In other words, once we recognize the limits of our own ignorance, then we are on the true path of learning. But wisdom to me is soul understanding. It is a kind of uber-emotional intelligence. It differs from knowledge, which seems to be about book smarts. I think of knowledge as being epitomized in our society in the figure of the professor. It differs again from experience, which seems to be about life itself, to be about the practical awareness gained through various moments over the course of time. This could be the sort of knowledge a master craftsperson has. Wisdom, in contrast, seems to have a relationship to the soul. It is a knowing of oneself through the language of interiority. This is not to say one cannot work towards it in the same way we gather knowledge or experience, but our expectations of wise people often happen in discourses with religious roots and include older people. The wise person is the one with the flowing robes and the band of followers, with gray hair and the calm aura. This is, of course, not to discount that we find pearls of wisdom scattered throughout the world, but rather that the stereotypical expression of this is the holy person. That might be the guru or the priest or the nun. That, to me, is wisdom. As Australian poet A.D. Hope said, in this age, we are so used to thinking of knowledge or the pursuit of science as a means to an end, that the notion of wisdom as an end in itself, the proper end of a contemplative life, has almost been lost from view. The contemplative life is associated in most people's minds with yogis and hermits, mystics and recluses, characters whose occupations suggest withdrawal from life rather than the pursuit of wisdom, which is nothing less than the crown of life in all its completeness." End quote. If that is wisdom, what then is poetry? To me, poetry is language that is noticeable. We encounter poetry at important rituals. There may be a playful mocking limerick at a 21st birthday party, a sentimental sonnet at a wedding, or perhaps an elegiac lament at a funeral. For most of us, poetry is not an everyday encounter. And while we may remember that someone said something that rhymed at a particular moment in time, it is for the most part a forgotten cultural artifact. When we think about poetry then, we might think of it as language that is unfamiliar, or as the 1920s Russian literary theorist Viktor Shklovsky once said, language that has been defamiliarized. He used this term as a way to differentiate habit from art. We could think of habit as automatic, assumed, naturalized, entrained. In other words, habit is about the everyday. It is the sleep we wipe from our eyes, the route we take to work on our bike, the coffee we order regularly. We have become so used to this way of living, this way of engaging with the world and language, that it is all but unconscious. In contrast, poetry exists that one may recover the sensation of life. It exists to make one feel things, to make the stone stony. Poetry makes us aware of the perception of things, which could mean becoming aware of the difficulty of language, the fact that there are multiple meanings and strange arrangements of words all around us. We know poetry is to some degree a performance of language, and in that we say that the world is a stage. It's like a stone in the shoe that makes you aware of how you step. To state as much about wisdom and poetry is very well, but to ask what is the wisdom of poetry is almost to ask where do we go for spiritual guidance in language? This is especially pressing when we realize that language is all around us. How do we separate the wheat from the chaff? What makes wisdom wisdom and poetry poetry? And what do we mean when we say we? Who are we talking about? Our ideas of wisdom and of poetry are, of course, culturally situated. They are contextual. Right now, my use of the word we could mean those of us gathered here at the M Pavilion, and together we could come to a shared understanding of poetry and wisdom, our own sorts of definitions. This could be as people who know the School of Life, people who know the M Pavilion, people looking for wisdom, people into poetry, 
people going to India, people needing something serious, people needing something light for lunch. Or we could mean us Melburnians, and we focus on what wisdom and poetry have been produced in this city of literature. That might mean thinking about our history or our literary journals. What poetry comes to mind when we say the name John Forbes or Gig Ryan or Chris Wallace Crabb? Or what do we think of when we say Mianjin or Overland? Or maybe we could mean me in the sense of our nationality as Australians, which brings to mind a certain sense of material comfort, but also a history of settlement and colonisation. This is not only for Indigenous people, but for others separated from traditional homelands through court order, political strife, economic depression, war and turmoil. We might also mean people living in a post-religious time. This is not to discount religious practice all over the world, but by that we live after Nietzsche, who proclaimed God is dead. The sectarian divisions that used to be so prevalent are less pronounced now, but with the decline of church, mosque, temple and synagogue, we struggle to find leadership in terms of wisdom because of its religious roots. With this consideration of who we are right here and now, of who this congregation is, I want to propose some readings and writings of poems that shed light on wisdom and to conduct some activities. I do not stand here as someone who believes they possess wisdom, but I do stand here convinced I have knowledge of poetry, which is often a repository of wisdom, and as someone for whom this understanding is grounded in my own life, as someone who encounters different types of language constantly. I do not only mean that I translate poetry from Spanish, French, and languages from the Pilbara in Northwestern Australia, but that I, just like you, move between worlds with different codes of conduct. This is essentially about context, and context teaches us a great deal of wisdom. For example, if we hear the phrase, look at this soul, it will mean something different if we hear it in church or at a shoe shop. And that is the point I was making about poetry, about defamiliarization from earlier on. Thinking about context and defamiliarization means that we think about language, and through language we can express wisdom. So finally, to the poetry and to the wisdom. Once again, let's turn to Australian poet A.D. Hope, who said, nearly every people has its wisdom literature, collections of proverbs, pithy and sententious sayings, epigrammatic rules for the conduct of life, timely warnings about the fickleness of women, the unreliability of princes, the dishonesty of merchants, and so on. End quote. Where then is our wisdom literature? Where is our poetry of wisdom today? It is, I think, potentially everywhere, and the burden is on us to find examples of it wherever we can, examples that can help us lead better lives, examples from fortune cookies to Shakespeare. Now, as some of you might have guessed, I'm a lover of good food. I particularly love the School of Life's Mindful in May feast. Uh, but food is not only the gourmet things from Attica and Moon Underwater, but also everyday solace one finds in a bowl of muesli or a cheap burger. Now, I think there is plenty of wisdom about eating. We see it in phrases such as other fish to fry. I have a poem that I'm going to read now on this topic from Irish poet Seamus Haney. Oysters. Our shells clacked on the plates. My tongue was a filling estuary. My palate hung with starlight. As I tasted the salty Pleiades, Orion dripped his foot in the water. Alive and violated, they lay on their bed of ice. Bivalves, the split bulb and philandering sigh of ocean. Millions of them ripped and shucked and scattered. We had driven to that coast through flowers and limestone, and there we were, toasting friendship, laying down a perfect memory in the cool of thatch and crockery. Over the Al Alps, packed deep in hay and snow, the Romans hauled their oysters south to Rome. I saw damp panniers disgorge, the frond-lipped, brine-stung, glut of privilege, and was angry that my trust could not repose. In the clear light, like poetry of freedom, leaning in from sea, 
I ate the day deliberately that its tang might quicken me all into verb, pure verb. Okay? Now, with that as inspiration, we're going to do our first poetry writing exercise today. Our first exercise involves the fortune cookie you have. I want you to return to the saying that was in there and write a poem based on that. You might want to include a food memory or a gourmet experience. You might want to think about a specific word that's in there. You might want to simply write a story around it. But the opportunity is for you to write a poem that encaptures the fortune cookie wisdom you have in front of you. Um, if you need some paper, Megan can hand some out to you. So maybe just signal that you need some paper. And I'll give you a few minutes to work on it. specific instructions for the ones afterwards. Oh, that's amazing.
Come back together. So hold on to these poems, you know, and towards the end of the session, you can turn to your neighbour and share them with you, with each other, and you can also take them home. So the first section was kind of about food. The second section I want to talk about is self. Uh, there are many poems about oneself, about autobiography. One of my favourite books is Lynn Hegenian's My Life which is a sort of series of disconnected uh, sentences that also accumulate to give you a sort of mosaic, a sort of fragmented picture of who she is as a person in an autobiographical way. Another one of these is Joe Brainerd's I Remember. Uh, Brainerd's I Remember is interesting because of its heavy use of repetition. Uh, every stanza, almost every line really, begins with the phrase I Remember. Another poem that I've talked about with the School of Life before called Not... Uh, for All the Whiskey in Heaven by Charles Bernstein starts with Not For All the on every line. Uh, now, our second exercise today will revolve a lot about repetition, but it's going to be a kind of celebration poem. This could be an announcement of a newborn or a set of well-wishing that sends them out into the world with goodness and hope. It could be a birthday card to yourself. It could be a sort of Christmas card and set of possibilities. Uh, as inspiration about this, about ourselves, I have a poem by Les Murray that I'm going to read called Performance. I starred that night, I shone. I was footwork and firework in one. A rocket that wriggled up and shot darkness with a parasol of brilliance and a peewee decant on a flung bit. I was busters of glitter bombs expanding to mantle an aurora from a crown. I was fouillettes, falls of blazing paint, para flares spot welding cloudy heaven, loose gold off fierce toeholds of white, a finale red-tongued as a huckaleep. That too was a butt of all right. As usual, after any triumph, I was, of course, inconsolable. Now, the celebration poem I want you to write about yourself, I want you to write it with a sort of repetitious beginning. So you could start with, I remember, I am, I believe, I hope. Uh, or it could be, the day was, the day was, the day was. And make it a seven-line poem. So write a seven-line poem that is a type of celebration about yourself as a way to sort of make yourself feel good. So get stuck in and we'll come back together in around five minutes.
I'll give you another couple of minutes. All right, we might move along to our third section. So we've had food and self. The third part I want to talk about briefly is nature. For me, spiritual guidance or wisdom often comes through reflection in nature. I've got a few spots that I'm particularly close to in the southwest of Western Australia where I go to recharge my batteries, where I go to think about the world in a particular way. Um, and if we turn to nature, we might want to ask, what about nature and where do we go? And how do we communicate this with other people? I can't take all of you to Redgate Beach, but I can definitely share my experiences of. But different places have different rituals. Different people have different poetry to recognise their relationship with nature. And sharing in that poetry is one way of building community. <coughs> I've spent a lot of time in the western and eastern Pilbara in the northwest of Australia, and I've participated in initiation ceremonies there and a big part of those communities is creating relationships through poetry be that in song lines or spoken personal poems now if we're in melbourne if we're alienated from nature in a different way we might want to see nature simply in the air we breathe 
in the rain that falls on us, in the weeds that push through the cracks in the concrete, not only in the sublime expanses of mountains and deserts and the vast horizons of the west coast. We are inescapably of the natural world. There is no denying our animality, but what poetry teaches us is how to render this in language. Okay. To that end, I'm going to share with you some translations of haiku from Basho, who was a Japanese poet. One, at a hermitage, a cool fall night, getting dinner, we peeled eggplants, cucumbers. Two, a field of cotton, as if the moon had flowered. Three, coolness of the melons flecked with mud in the morning dew. What you might notice about these three examples of haiku is that they're quite imagistic. They're kind of like stationary poems that just let you sit by looking at a particular thing. Okay, now our third exercise today is write a haiku. Okay, so how do you compose it? What is a haiku? A haiku, as it's been rendered in the English translation, is a short poem that has five syllables on the first line, seven syllables on the second line, and five syllables on the, on the third line. So it's just a short three-line poem, five syllables, seven syllables, five syllables. And invariably, traditionally, it has been about the natural world. So you might want to say, on the banks of the Yarra, <laughs> that's six, um, on the Yarra banks, uh, there are pigeons and swans there. In the sun, I smile, you know, or something like this. So five, seven, five is the syllable structure. So think about it that way. Okay, I'll give you a few minutes to work on it. Another couple of minutes. 
All right, let's wrap that exercise up. So hopefully you got at least one haiku done. Um, the next sort of area to think about in terms of wisdom today, uh, and our final one before we read some poems to each other, is on death. Uh, some of the wisest words are cliches, and authors have varying degrees of fondness for the often said. For example, David Foster Wallace was often said to appreciate the hallmark greeting card wisdom, much like fortune cookie wisdom. One place I have often heard cliches is around death. I remember when one of my uncles died a couple of years ago, people said things like, I'm sorry for your loss. He has gone to a better place. He lived a good life. As worthy as those platitudes are, and as true as they may have been, what is striking is how well-worn and old they are. They are known because we have heard them before. They might be known too because we simply are quite lost for words. So come up with rehearsed lines, old adages that convention requires. And there is nothing wrong with that. But consider for a moment how you want to die and consider on top of that how you want to be remembered. For example, my grandfather's tombstone reads, here lies the body of RWW who will no longer trouble you, trouble you. In a minute, we're going to write a eulogy for ourselves. But before that, I'm going to read a poem by William Blake on another's grief. Can I see another's woe and not be in sorrow too? Can I see another's grief and not seek for kind relief? Can I see a falling tear and not feel my sorrows share? Can a father see his child weep nor be with sorrow filled? Can a mother sit and hear an infant groan, an infant fear? No, no, never can it be, never, never can it be. And can he who smiles on all hear the wren with sorrow small, hear the small bird's grief and care, hear the woes that infants bear, and not sit beside the nest, pouring pity in their breast, and not sit the cradle near, weeping tear on infant's tear, and not sit both day and night, wiping all our tears away. Oh no, never can it be, never, never can it be. He doth give his joy to all, he becomes an infant's fall, he becomes a man of woe, he doth feel the sorrow too. Think not thou canst sigh a sigh, and thy maker is not by. Think not thou canst weep a tear, and thy maker is not near. Oh, he gives to us his joy, that our grief he may destroy. Till our grief is fled and gone, he doth sit by us and moan. All right? So this is a poem that's about a profound kind of empathy. How can we sit by and watch the world as it burns? So why should we sit here on a sunny day when children are in detention? Or how can we sit here and live our lives without an unthinking quality to them? So I want you to think about how you want to be remembered. Project and say, how do I want my life to be remembered and what contribution I have made in the form of a poem? So write 10 lines as a eulogy. You might want to think about rhyme. You might want to think about alliteration, which is where words begin with the same letter. Uh, you might want to think about poetic techniques and possibilities. But think about death and your place in the world.
another couple of minutes. wrap up the line you're working on and we'll come back together. All right, now, um, I understand there's a social convention around poetry that prohibits its uh, public display because people are wrapped up in an idea that it's about an intimate expression of the self. And I, that's fine, I don't have a problem with that. But I know lots of you, especially people enjoying having a chat, have been working so hard in their poems that I'm going to give you the opportunity to come up here and read your poetry that you've written right now on the microphone. So do we have any volunteers? Yeah? Who wants to read their poetry? You guys are pretty chatty. Do you want to come up and read? Yeah? Come on. Take a seat. Round of applause, round of applause. Come on. Take a seat, take a seat. Um, this is a haiku that I wrote about happiness. Um, ha it's, happiness is found in the pizza for breakfast and pancakes for tea. Right. <laughs> Who wants to be our next reader? Yeah, come on. one where we had to start like seven lines with the same like starting but I actually wrote eight because I didn't know what to do <laughs> so I wrote the night was cool the night was clear the night was no fool the night did not fear the night was strong the night was fierce the night was long the night danced like some deers <laughs> Yay. yeah come on both of you can come up you just get a little line up if you want to read your poem, just come up and we'll start a little line. Do I sit down? Sit down, yeah. Okay, yeah. Okay. So mine's about my fortune because it was about buying unnecessary things and I buy way too many clothes, so. Um, Buying those things, those unnecessary things, the one-time flings or the mannequins that sing, the happiness they bring won't last a thing, for happiness can be found in something other than cha-ching. 
Do I sit? All right. So this poem was actually, um, I wrote this earlier today, but Miss Hiles told me I should say it because it was based off the song by Five Seconds of Summer, so I'm just going to read it. <laughs> okay. She hides in her room as her father comes home. She slams the door shut as the footsteps become closer. Her mother is being pushed into a corner. She begs, no more, but he keeps going. They used to be a happy couple. Her mother would be sewing and her dad would be cooking. <laughs> now all they do is fight. Her dad would yell and hit her. Her mother would scream and cry. That's when the daughter realised she was inside a broken home. <laughs> do we have one more? Okay, both of you come up. Oh, okay. <laughs> Stop. Okay, so this one was from my fortune cookie, which said that be prepared to accept a wondrous opportunity in the days ahead. Opportunity in some lives are scarce and rare. That is why we should treat them with utmost care. Take them or let it go, but then the experience you shall never know. Be prepared for the day because an opportunity is coming your way. So I wrote this one about self, it's called I am. I am weak, I am selfish, I am ugly, I am unloved, I am greedy, I am a cheat, I am none of the above. Um, so I wrote this for my grandpa, who recently passed away. Um, I remember growing up, I remember my pain, I remember my happiness, I remember my laughter, I remember my loss, I remember my adventures, I remember my birthdays, I remember my memories. Thanks for reading, everyone. So poetry to wrap up. Poetry to me is a type of slow critique. It forces us to look at the world anew because it slows us down. It often plays with ambiguity, with sense and meaning, with rhyme in such a way that enables us to look at life differently. This can be a fortune cookie type of wisdom or even the most serious form of scholarship. In that way, I think poets can be a type of secular magic man, a type of post-religious priest or rabbi or imam, because there is the condensation of knowledge in poetry that is hard to find elsewhere. The idea of the poet as a magician is there in the ancient Greeks, American transcendentalists, and suburban mystics. Whereas the shallowness of celebrity peaks in youth, think Bieber and Thorpe, and politicians reach the mountaintop in middle age, poets linger longer. Poetry then has a natural affinity with wisdom because it represents the learning that comes with time. Today we have a lot of commodified wisdom, mindfulness, yoga retreats. These are an industry of wellness. We are trying to find ways to de-stress by retreat. Poetry is a type of break from language and thought that allows us to reconnect with what is important and meaningful with ourselves and our community. I hope you continue to seek out poetry as a type of wisdom poetry as a type of knowledge because I know that it can help people out in times of darkness and trouble with insight, clarity and beauty. Thanks a lot. Come back to the M Pavilion, come back to the School of Life. Um, 
and continue to read and enjoy poetry and have a sunny day. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>